Good morning, everyone. My name's Rob. If you don't know me, I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, I'll tell you, I just love that story. <laughs> you know, it's in stories like that that God reminds me of the theme that we've been unpacking in the, cha- uh, the book of Isaiah, chapters 6 through 12. You might recall in chapter 6 that we, we talked around this idea that renovation begins with demolition. In order for something new to come about, God must destroy that which is broken and that which needs to be replaced with something better. If you look at the, the, the book of Isaiah, you'll notice that for God to begin this work in the prophet Isaiah, he must actually begin with the prophet's view of God himself. Because it turns out that any one of our views of God is far too small, it's inferior. I like what A.W. Tozer said, it's been a famous quote for years, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In our mission statement over here, we begin with this idea of worship. We encapsulate our mission in three words, worship, transformation, mission. And a lot of Christians think, well, the mission begins with the idea of mission. But listen, if you have a wrong view of God, your mission is anemic. You're not going to do anything of substance in the world. And so we've got to grow a larger view of God. Now, what happens when I develop a big God theology well, renovation. Think about Matteo's story. You remember what Isaiah said last week? He said that we need to trade fear for fear. Do not fear the things that other people fear, but instead fear the Lord your God. What happens when I develop a big God theology, when I trade fear for fear? Well, in Matteo's case, he feared gangs He feared the things that have happened in his life. He was abandoned. He had suffered loss. There was coercive pressure. There was deep resentment and bitterness and anger. And he traded that at his baptism. And he said, no, I'm going to stand up in front of these people. And I'm going to declare that there is a God in my life. It makes me think about Jesus' interaction with his disciples as he's sending them out into the Galilean countryside. This is the first time in their ministry where they're about to go and proclaim the gospel on their own. And he says to them, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a renovating message. And you mean to tell me, Jesus, that I don't need to put all of my eggs in the 401k basket, that I don't have to fret so much over my health, that I develop a control around that, that I need to care less about what other people think about me? You know, when it comes to that dilemma, what people think about me, I can have a big, uh, people are big and God is small theology. But I need to trade that for something better. Jesus says, when you trade your fears, you actually come to find out that you've entrusted yourself to a heavenly father who is loving. 
Because the next words that he says to his disciples are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Or if you used to have hairs, he knew what they were back then. (laughs) Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God even considers the sparrow that's the freebie. He knows it all. You're so much more valuable to him than this. So we pick up the story in Isaiah. We're in the beginning of chapter 9, if you'd like to flip there with me. Remember at the end of chapter 8, he's warning these exiles against pursuing revelation that is outside of Scripture, outside of God's revelation they were tempted to go to these necromancers and mediums who might tell them something about the future. They believed that a conversation with the dead would give them a leg up in life. And of course, we can hold to wrong views of revelation as well. What we find in the scriptures is anytime that I seek revelation outside of God, that I'm walking in darkness and blindness. And of course, that can create big problems in my life. At the end of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, he says this, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a picture, of course, of a life without revelation. Now, these themes, darkness, in light are big themes in the scripture. Darkness, of course, is talking about the evil and the ignorance that comes about in this world due to the human condition. There is just untold evil that takes place in this world. In Isaiah's day, if you were living there, you would have seen the injustice, the oppression, the abandonment of people, families being ripped apart, subjugation, was a dark and evil world. Assyria is coming in, and they are going to be ruthless upon these people. But it's no different than today. You know, we may live in the shiny suburbs, and and we may feel like we're kind of locked away from that kind of stuff, that we've cloistered ourselves off and we can't see it. But I tell people all the time, listen, there are a million causes that are taking place every single day that would give you nightmares if you knew about them. It's a dark world that we live in. But thank God that there is another theme in the scripture. And that theme is the theme of light. Now, light and its attributes are so powerful as you think about this theme. What is it that light is? Well, you can only really think about darkness by taking light into your mind because darkness happens to be the absence of light. Light always penetrates darkness. When light enters into dark places, it illuminates the darkness. As we look at scripture, God is breaking into the darkness that has its grip upon the world. He is bringing children out of the darkness and he's bringing them into the light. It tells us that eventually that God will do away with the darkness entirely. So it's with those themes in mind that we actually pick up with the first three verses here in Isaiah 9. Listen to the prophet's message. 
But there will be no gloom for who, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, light penetrating darkness is actually a theme that also helps us to see this idea of a great reversal taking place. In the time period that Isaiah is writing, Tiglath-Pileser III, he's the Assyrian king, he has just invaded Zebulun and Naphtali. This is around the year 733 BC. These are the first two regions in northern Israel that are invaded during this time of conquest. This has just happened. And at this point, northern Israel is now a vassal state. They're beholden to Assyria. They're doing Assyria's will. At some point, they will try to rebuff Assyria. And what ends up happening later is in 722 BC, Assyria comes in and they fully consume the nation. Now think about the reversal that Isaiah is describing here in verses 1 through 3. The same land that Assyria comes in and invades and turns into providences is going to become the location of the greatest hope in human history. When you talk about a reversal, it's interesting when Isaiah talks about this great reversal, he speaks of the future using past tense verbs. It's as if it's already happened in the prophet's mind. It's so certain that you can count on it, you can bank on it. This is what will unfold. We tend to think of prophecy as hope for tomorrow, but that's not true according to the scriptures. It's hope for right now. It's hope for the present, hope for today. In fact, we should never fall into the mindset as a believer that because the present is difficult that somehow God has forgotten about us. God is not a God of forgetting. He's the kind of God that's 10,000 steps ahead of whatever circumstance you are dealing with right now. We're talking, or we're, we're praying to him, and we're saying, God, I just need help to get through today. And God's saying, listen, I'm busy preparing mansions for eternity. I've got this. I'm way ahead of you. He's also a God that will expand your vision of the possibilities you see, Isaiah, in these three verses, as he's talking about to this little remnant, he gives them this vision that is grand, that is global. Uh, in verse 1, Isaiah refers to this region called Galilee, a place will, which will be of great significance in the New Testament, right? He calls it Galilee of the nations. And then in verse 3, he also talks about this being a place 
where there is multiplication, the nation will be multiplied. What we come to find out about God through these two concepts put together is that he is a multiplying God. He's not a God of addition. He's not going to just build a little remnant a little bigger. He is a God who has an international vision for the world. It's interesting. Galilee Nowhere else in the Old Testament is referred to Galilee of the nations. Eugene Peterson, he likes to paraphrase it as international Galilee. Isaiah is telling these people that God has a global plan. In fact, as a New Testament believer, I think it's very appropriate for our minds to go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and think about heaven and eternity and who will be populating that place. And Revelation 9 says that there's a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation and people and language standing before the throne. Now, John the Apostle is not being exaggeratory there when he says, when you're in heaven, you won't be able to number the people populating heaven. Why do I say that? Well, think about it like this. If the average person takes 25 seconds to count to 100, how long does it take to count to a billion? Well, about 100 years. Okay, so if you look at a timestamp of the world right now, it is reported that there are some 2.2 billion Christians living in the world right now. Do the math. Heaven is going to be so well populated. We're not going to want to stand around and take the time to count the number of people. This is a big vision that Isaiah is giving us here in the text. So what do we have to learn from this? Well, even when the world appears darkest, even when there's earthquakes in Turkey, even when there's war in the Ukraine, even when in your personal world things seem to be spiraling out of control, when they feel insurmountable, you as a believer can count on a better future. That will renovate your hope. And it turns out that when you look at the world in that way, Near-term pain becomes far less and far more manageable in your heart and in your mind when you realize that it's going to be overshadowed by glory and eternity. I think about it from just a simple, humble, you know, medical visit, right? Uh, uh, If you go into a doctor and, and get a knee operation or a shoulder surgery or something like that, you are subjecting yourself to near-term pain for a better future, And when you compare the two things together, you say to yourself, it's worth this so that I get that. Think about what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he was talking about his suffering in life. He said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oh, okay, Paul, so light and momentary affliction. That doesn't sound too bad. I can handle that. Well, let's just kind of skip ahead a little bit to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians and hear about Paul's light momentary affliction. Oh, he was scourged or beat with whips five times. He's beaten with rods 
three times. He's nearly stoned to death once. In his travels, he had a lot of boats involved there, and he shipwrecked three times. One of those times, he's left out in the open sea for a night and a day. And beyond all of that, he says, just in the travels, I could have died a lot of times. It was really dangerous. It's not light. It's not momentary. And yet, as he compared the present with the future, the future glory has so much weightiness that the present seems minuscule by way of comparison. Listen, like Isaiah, like Paul, you need to start thinking about your future in the past tense. You need to be so convinced that that this is going to happen, that God's going to deliver, that he's going to do what he said he's going to do, that I can live for Jesus right now. You think that would change the way that you operate in life if you thought about your future in the past tense? I think it would. I mean, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're dealing with, you think to yourself, okay, I can deal with this because the weight of glory that awaits me is so, so vast, so good. In verse 3, we see that Isaiah's renovated hope is also a a joy bringer. And new perspective will do that for you. If you're stuck in the present, if you're stuck in the vicious hamster wheel of life, eat, sleep, work, repeat, the, the hamster wheel that many of us live with, or if you develop a doom and gloom theology where you read the news cycle all the time and we're just constantly told that the world's going to end and they say that the the Christians are the ones who are doom and gloom prophets? I mean, you'll never have joy. Joy is about a shift in perspective. Joy is the ability to wake up in the morning, see the sunshine, and say beauty is a gift. Joy is the ability to look into the future and say, I am another day heading into that direction, and that is a gift. If you adopt an attitude of joy in your life, it's a difference maker. Now, Isaiah, as he looks into the future, sees two things that are just joy-producing in his world. Look at verses 4 and 5 in the text. He says, first, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here's the joy that he's describing here. It's the joy of light eradicating the darkness of captivity and oppression and war and conflict. Isaiah is seeing a future that will be so unlike the present experience that you really just can't even hardly imagine it. One way that he 
describes this future is he actually goes back to one of the stories of old for the people of Israel. Now, stories have that way of helping us see that there can be a better tomorrow. They ground us. They inspire us. We often go back to stories in our own history and remember, isn't it incredible that this came about? For the people of Israel, that story happened to be, one of those stories happened to be the story of Gideon. You go into Judges chapters 6 through 8, and you see that the Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel, so much so that Gideon, in order to make wine, he has to hide in order to do that. And then God raises him up as a judge, and God tells him, you're only going to go against this oppressive force with 300 men. He starts off with a lot more. God keeps whittling it down. He's like, that's too many. That's too many. Keep going. Nope, nope, still way too many. He gets down to 300, and he's like, finally, we're at a number where you guys can't say you did this. I did this. And that story, of course, is a reminder to these remnant people here in this Assyrian invasion that if God delivered then, he can deliver today. He's a God of liberty. He's a God of freedom. He has the ability to do these things. Now, if you look at verse 5, you also see something just incredible. Anything dedicated to conflict goes on to the bonfire. Uh, war is over. Can you imagine a world where there is no more war? I think about this book that I read recently. It's called Real Peace by Andy Farmer, and he's talking about the biblical concept of peace. And he notes that when we tend to think of peace, we tend to think of it for what it is not. So if you went today and no bullets were whizzing past your head, then you're in a state of peace. Aren't you lucky? We think of it this way. Why? Because the common denominator around the world has not been peace. It has been war. It has been conflict. At any given time, in any point in human history, you can look at that point in time, and there was some conflict taking place somewhere in the world. We just af exited Afghanistan. There's a, a Ukrainian conflict that is raging right now. There has always been some form of war around the world. It has been said that peace is that glorious moment when everybody stands around reloading. And it's just sad. Can you imagine a world where there's no bullets, no nukes, no R&D departments discovering new ways to obliterate the world seven times over again? You see, Isaiah is picturing a world that is so stable that not only are the nukes disarmed, but the gear that the soldiers wear for war is being burned. We're never going to need that again. We're never going back in that direction. I don't know about you, but I want to live in that world. But right now, I can't see a way to get there. And when you take in the human condition, human nature, even if nations all around the world, they make this great peace treaty and they say, 
we're not going to attack one another, guess what? They're still going to have reserves of weapons because a Hitler will come about. So how do we get to this world that Isaiah is describing? Well, it turns out that God would have to radically renovate human nature itself for us to get to this world. Well, how does he do that? Well, if you look at the next verses, I think Ray Ortland frames them well. He says, God, God's answer to everything that has terrorized us is a child. Think about that. Put yourself in the shoes of these remnant people hearing this prophecy for the first time. Just drink that sentence in for a minute. The, the Assyrians are terrifying to these people. And they're looking to Isaiah for answers, and they're looking to God for answers. What an incredible prophecy. So you're saying that all of these things that terrorize us, the things that have had their grip upon us as a human civilization since the beginning, that those are going to be solved through a baby? That's the power of God. The power of God is that he can overcome our worst terrors through the humblest of means. His plan is to cast out the darkness of war and human tragedy with the light of a single baby. And these verses we're about to read, I mean, we've read them hundreds of times. We read them, we've been reading them for decades on the front of our steps. Now here's a sentence we need to remember, familiarity breeds contempt. When I become so familiar with Scripture, Scripture can start feeling old and tired to me. That's not good. As the people of God, we don't need old, tired words. We need fresh, new, relevant words, words for today. So I encourage you, when you go into the Scriptures, open your mind, ask God for fresh words from the Scripture for you today. Listen to these words with fresh ears. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We sing a song at Christmas, what child is this? And of course, as we sing that, we are just meditating upon delving into the mystery of the Son of God taking on flesh. And of course, some 730 years before the coming of the Son, Isaiah is already exposing us to the mystery with these four names, these four titles. Who can make the nukes go away? Well, only the one who possesses these four titles. Wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Well, wonderful implies deity. 
If we were to cross-reference this idea of wonderful, we would actually go back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. It's in that text where God reveals to Abraham that his 90-year-old wife is about to have a baby. Okay, let that one sink in for a minute, right? Abraham laughs. I mean, this is outside of his understanding, his concept. Listen, God, I understand how the birds and the bees work, and this ain't going to work. And then God comes back at Abraham, and he says, Abraham, is anything too wonderful for God? Same word. So this child will possess the same wonder of God Almighty. Imagine a world where there is a king who has the wisdom of God himself and never makes a wrong decision. We look at the next two words, everlasting father, mighty God. Now, mighty God, of course, makes us think of the protection of God. He is mighty in battle. He is strong to save. Everlasting father, emphasizing a personal relationship. You could paraphrase it, always a father, a father who cares, a father who's concerned. Put the two concepts together. You have this king who is strong and mighty to save, and yet at the same time, he can get down on your level and provide the tender care about the things that are making you anxious in your world. As Peter says later in 1 Peter Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. And then we read that he's the prince of peace. So we come back to this concept of peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And let's say it's a lot bigger than just bullets not flying past your head. It's total peace. It's peace in every conceivable way, inner peace, relational peace, global peace. You can actually think about the story of the Bible through the lens of shalom. The fall is the loss of shalom, the reason that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Remember, in the beginning, God looked at the world and he said it was good. We look at the world today and we say it's not good. We've lost shalom. The other part of the story is God restoring shalom through the Son, Jesus Christ. You want to talk about renovation. It's about him restoring peace, shalom. So God sends Jesus, the Son, into the world because the world's not working right, because you're not working right, because our relationships are not working right. And God comes into the world not through the normal means that we would expect on how peace is made. Peace is normally made when a force comes in and they bring the rebels into submission. God goes the complete opposite route, a supreme act of love 2,000 years ago. A baby was born in a manger to an obscure family, born of a virgin, lives a perfect, righteous life, This baby comes with the signs and the wonders of God himself, the authority of God himself. He teaches as one with authority, it says in the New Testament. This baby was then cruelly framed, brutally beaten on the cross, 
shedding his blood, and somehow in that act of greatest injustice that has taken place in human history, here we have the case of perfect innocence being framed. God is again bringing about a great reversal. That baby is dying for you, shedding his blood on the cross, a substitutionary atonement. If that substitutionary atonement doesn't make sense to you, just simply think of him dying in your place and God being satisfied with that. That baby then raises again from the dead. He defeats and he conquers sin and death. In fact, when you think about Jesus, you have to understand that he's the prince of peace bringing a one-sided peace treaty. He dies in your place while you're still an enemy of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that he himself is our peace. We often want peace in our life. We want the well-being that it brings, and we think that, oh, okay, well, maybe I get there because I experience more tranquility in my life. If I get into this existential state of peace and calm, then everything will be okay. That's not where peace is found. It's also not going to be found by me controlling my world, by setting up a bank account and, and having everything secure around me. The Bible doesn't say that I can manage peace. It says that peace comes to me through a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want peace in your life? Do you want the future that Isaiah is telling us about? It's tethered to a person. It's tethered to Jesus. If I want to make, uh, be a part of this future, the Bible says then I must tether my life to Jesus as well. Now, that's going to require something of you. What does it require? Well, the Bible says it requires faith. What is faith? Well, I think most simply, if you want to get into faith and understand what it really means, faith means that you give up control. You give up control. I'm not going to try to manage everything in my life. In fact, I realize that there is a God of the universe who is far bigger than I am, and I give him control, and I trust him with that control. Think about this. If Jesus is the Son of God, he died on the cross for your sins, he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death, then he is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your faith. Have you given him that trust? Have you given him faith? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In fact, I want to give you an opportunity, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, to just simply commit that to him this morning. Can I ask everyone to bow your head with me? And as you do that, this is just a, a simple prayer. We're not saved because we say some words. We're saved because we've trusted Jesus. We've given up control. We believe. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to pray these words quietly in your heart and start that faith journey with him today. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior in the risen Lord.
Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control.